Now, I know some of you get very upset about this, so I will calm your fears. We will not sing more Christmas carols again until after Thanksgiving. So some of you are already very upset about that, except next week when we're going to sing Joy to the World. But after that, I promise, after that, actually, uh, we did it for two reasons. One, any time that it's over 90 degrees in September, you should sing songs about Christmas. It maybe will cool you down just a little bit. And secondly, Ryan is right, we're going to talk about angels today, and we're going to begin uh, the same way that we started last week by reading from Grace's doctrinal statement. So I want you to take out this salmon-colored sheet of paper, if you would, and we're going to read this paragraph together. While you're settling in, I'll just remind you, two weeks from today, September 16th, um, Lord willing, we're going to begin walking through the, gospel, uh, the epistle of First John, John's first letter that he wrote Uh, But today we're going to finish what we started, today and next week, we're going to finish what we started in the springtime in May, moving through Grace's doctrinal statement. We are after what Martin Luther observed is sometimes lacking in book-by-book teaching. We're after some systematic uh, focus on some of the Bible's key teachings. So that's what we've been doing this summer. We're going to read this, but I want to just mention one more thing before I do that. In the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, it says that anyone who desires to be an elder in a church longs for, desires for a noble task. And we have a number of men in our congregation who have served faithfully and well in this ministry position. Scott and I are always on the board of elders, and then right now we have seven other men who are serving. Well, on Friday, one of them, Bob Kobe, tendered his resignation as a member of the board of elders. He is doing this in part because, well, In whole, he is doing this because his wife, Julia, her health is continuing to decline. And he is uh, endeavoring to give his full attention uh, to caring for her. Uh, The Kobe's have not been with us most of the summer. Bob's here today. uh, And we hope that Julia will be able to join us again sometime soon. Uh, But uh, the Bible also tells us when it speaks to us about elders that anyone who doesn't care for his family is worse than an infidel. And uh, Bob is testifying to his faith in the Lord Jesus by fulfilling the vows that he made 52 years ago. So um, Bob, uh, his resignation took place, it was effective on Friday, and uh, we'll miss him on the board, uh, but we look forward to continuing to worship with he and Julia as she is able. Now let's read this paragraph together, shall we? About angels. We believe that God created angels spirit beings possessing power and intellect that exist to glorify him. Some do so by serving those who believe. Satan is an angel who because of pride sinned and was cast out of heaven, taking with him other fallen angels. Satan's role on earth, often performed by demons, is to deceive and destroy. Satan, along with all who follow him, will be defeated for eternity by Jesus Christ. I have several thick theology books on my shelves, and none of them have been encouraging about this topic. Uh, Let me tell you what Millard Erickson wrote. I like Millard Erickson, but here's what he said. When we come to the discussion of angels, we are entering upon a subject which in some ways is the most unusual and difficult of all of theology. Karl Barth, he continues, Karl Barth, who has given the most extensive treatment of the subject in any recent textbook, described the topic of angels as the most remarkable and difficult of all. 
It is therefore a topic which is tempting to omit or neglect. Some would say that Christian doctrine would be unaffected if we were to bypass this area, and in a sense, that's true. Then he continues, One reason this subject is so difficult is that while there are abundant references to angels in the Bible, the nature of those references is not such as to make them very helpful for developing an understanding of angels. Every reference to angels is incidental to some other topic. They're not treated in themselves. God's revelation never aims to inform us regarding the nature of angels. When they are mentioned, it is always in order to inform us further about God, what he does or how he does it. Since details about angels are not significant for that purpose, they tend to be omitted. And then I ran over this ran across this wonderful line from Rudolf Boltmann. Rudolf Boltmann was a German theologian. He died in 1984. Uh, he was the father of liberalism uh, in uh, the 1900s, uh, the 20th century. So we ignore him a lot. But this is what he said. He said, It is impossible to use electric lights and the radio and television and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits. So this is not encouraging. The doctrine of angels is apparently unnecessary, unbelievable, and irrelevant. And it's our subject for today. (laughs) Uh, The only time that we tend to really talk about angels is is at Christmas time and at Easter. That's when they uh, show up in our discussion. Or sometimes uh, along will come some strange teacher who has some uh, unusual ideas about angels and uh, they speak about them almost in worshipful terms. Or sometimes we talk about angels and demons under the heading of spiritual warfare. And both of those areas, uh, there is a vast array of speculation that has no roots really in the Bible. So do we need to talk about this? Is it really necessary or believable or relevant in any way? Well, what I want to do this morning is I want to review the role that angels played in the life of the Lord Jesus. We're going to start out, I'm going to read a lot of scripture, I'm going to post um, almost all of it up on the screen behind me, and I want to read, just read a lot of what's in the Gospels. I'm not going to comment on it, but I just want you to see what's here. There are, uh, we already talked about two key passages from Luke having to do with the birth and resurrection of the Lord. We're going to look at some others here. We'll start in, let's see, maybe, oh, there it is. Um, Aaron, could you turn that screen on? Okay, great. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Uh, Let's see. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, this is going to be difficult because I can't see that, and I'm going to move on to the next page. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. There are three named angels in the Bible. Uh, Michael, Gabriel, Michael sometimes identifies as an archangel, Gabriel, and then a third angel named Lucifer. We'll talk about him in a little bit. And here, Gabriel brings news about Mary's pending birth, uh, the birth of the Lord Jesus. Um, Any other names for angels you got, you have, you have heard, do not come from the Bible. They come from some aberrant source, maybe some well-meaning source, but some aberrant source. Now, we read from Luke 2 uh, about the angels and the shepherds. There's one phrase in Luke 2.13 that I'm interested in. Look at this. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God. A great company. So how many angels are there? The question goes. There's a lot. At various times, the Bible says ten thousands. Twice ten thousands. Thousands upon thousands. Twelve legions. Uh, which could be between 36 and 72,000. Innumerable angels, the Bible says. And then Revelation says, thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. So let's say there's 100 million, give or take a few, right? There are 12.8 million residents of the state of Pennsylvania and at least 100 million angels. It's a lot. Now, here's another uh, angelic encounter in the Gospels. Then Jesus, well, this is be an, a demonic encounter in the Gospels. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, You shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and here we go, an angel came and attended him. What did the angel come and do? And how did the angel know to come? Regardless, clearly here, Jesus is the master and the angel is serving him. Now, from this point in time in the Gospels until the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' interaction with these supernatural creatures uh, is not so much with angels as with demons as Jesus exercises (laughs) the ministry of exorcism. Uh, There are four long exorcism stories in the Gospels. All of them are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's one healthy paragraph where it describes that ministry. And then there are a number of references and sayings about Jesus dealing with demons. We're going to just read one of them. This comes from the Gospel of Matthew. The parallel to this in Mark is perhaps well known, but Matthew's version is shorter. That's why we're going to take the time to read that one. 
When he arrived, Jesus arrived at the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Interesting. They know there is an appointed time. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, uh, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. I think that's one of the saddest phrases in the Gospels. Please go away, go away, go away. So two demon-possessed men in this passage, they're so violent, uh, they can't be controlled, and the demons apparently that are demonizing them can speak, presumably using the vocal cords of the men that they're demonizing, and Jesus cast them out, and interestingly, they, they went into the pigs. The unclean spirits came out of the men and went into unclean animals, and they became uncontrollable, those pigs, suicidal. We had a pet bird once that I'm fairly certain was demon-possessed. <laughs> it's a strange bird. He would go from being very gentle and kind to satanic in a matter of seconds. Um, it, this bird, it was easy to teach this bird to whistle. He was a cockatiel, so we taught him to whistle. And what's the easiest way to whistle that we know? It was foolish of me, but the first thing I taught the bird to do was go... It was a bad move. It was a very bad move. Because whenever anybody in the house, anybody would come over to the house, the bird would sit there and whistle at them. (laughs) There was one day this uh, gracious older woman, she was from Asia, she was a seminary student. She came to the door and she was standing there and Max just cut loose at her. Max was the name of the demonic bird. And um, she's... And she just stood there as calmly and innocently as my bird was harassing her and she had no, it was terrible, it was terrible. So exorcism was part of Jesus' ministry, but it's, it's striking how specific and detailed the Bible is about the relationship between demon possession and illness. So these are not um, stupid people, they're not pre-scientific Um, magical, superstitious people. Demonization sometimes in the Gospels causes blindness and deafness and convulsions and paralysis, but that's not always the case. And the Bible is specific enough and careful enough to distinguish that. So here's an example from Matthew 17, one of those four exorcism stories where it's very clear that the demon possession is causing these seizures, perhaps some form of epilepsy. Look what it says. When they, that is Jesus and a couple of his disciples who were off, came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, you unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. So here is a very specific point in time in the Gospels where demon possession is causing these seizures. 
But then look at this passage in Matthew chapter 4 and how sophisticated the Bible is about this. News about Jesus, news about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with, here's the list, various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. So in one instance in Matthew 17, clearly the demon is tied to the seizures. Here, it's very specifically differently listed. There are people who have illnesses, and there are people who have demon possession. The Bible is uh, specific about this, focused about this. Uh, it would be foolish, it would be foolish to blame every illness on demon possession or the presence of demons because sometimes that's not what's going on and the New Testament speaks about demons that way. Now, Jesus taught about Satan only a couple of times. One of my favorite verses, and some of you love this verse like I do, about this is in John 10.10. It's a beautiful verse. The thief, speaking of our enemy Satan, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Our doctrinal statement mentioned that, doesn't it? Satan and his demons have come to deceive and to destroy, and it, it is based in part on this verse from John 10.10. 10. Now we turn to the last week of Jesus' life on earth, his passion week, and look what it says here about the angels in um, attending him. Luke 22. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. How did this angel strengthen him? What did he do? What did this angel say? In this passage, uh, uh, the father does not answer Jesus' prayer and change the plan. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't let the cup pass from him. But what the father does do in response to Jesus' plan is he sends this angel who comes and strengthens him and helps him and encourages him. Now Jesus mentions angels again a little bit later in that same scene in Matthew 26. It says, while he was still speaking, Jesus with his disciples, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword Uh, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Isn't it interesting? The Lord Jesus had prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not uh, not my will, but your will be done. And here he acknowledges that he has at that moment the power to call 12 legions, 36 to 72,000 angels to come and defend him. And he does not take advantage of that power. Can you imagine what that would have been like? One angel, the Bible tells us, 
uh, in one night uh, killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. What could 36 to 72,000 angels do? Uh, now, we heard about angels at the resurrection from Scott. He read in Luke. Now we're going to talk about angels at the ascension in Acts chapter 1. Then they, that is the disciples, gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time, after the resurrection, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white, angels, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go, have seen him going into heaven. Now, look at 1 Thessalonians 4. We're talking about the future life of the Lord Jesus here. And... Um, there is a reference to an angel here. So Jesus has ascended. We read that in Acts. Here's the passage about his coming back. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with, a, with the voice of the archangel. What's the command? I don't know. What does Jesus say? Come on. I don't know. Loud command. The voice of the archangel. What will he say? And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So angels there. Now, I could talk a lot about angels in the book of Revelation. They do a lot of things in Revelation surrounding the Lord Jesus, but there's just one thing I want to point out, his, their worship of the Lord Jesus. Then I looked, John says, and I heard the voice of many angels. Here it is numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power, wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. So, this is a survey here of the verses, some of the verses of the interaction of the Lord Jesus with the angelic host. Having seen this and considered all of them and reading through them, do you think maybe this subject is unnecessary, irrelevant, and unbelievable? Uh, here's the problem with Rudolf Boltman and others. Uh, it is apparent that Jesus himself believed in angels and demons and Satan. And, and, and will not do, as some people say, that Jesus was merely accommodating himself to the pre-modern, pre-scientific superstitions of the ancient Judeans. That these angels are too involved in the Lord Jesus' life to just be accommodation. They show up at places where just this accommodation is just not necessary. So I don't think that it would be very useful for me, a very useful strategy to try to prove to you that angels exist. It would be better, I think, to, try to talk about the truthfulness of the Bible and the witness that it brings to Jesus. And, and then having established that, having said, this is God's word, you can trust it and you can believe what it says about Jesus. Then from there to go and say, and by the way, the Lord Jesus, he believed in angels and you should too. I think that's the better strategy. I think it's a more fruitful strategy. 
Um, because the Lord Jesus believed in angels, we believe in angels too. Now, for the rest of the time, what I want to do is I want to talk briefly about the role that angels play in the Bible and in the world. So we believe in angels, we believe in demons, what do they do? And I have four words that I want to give you that describe the role that angels play. First, I'm going to use the word entourage. Angels are entourage. Uh, angels function as members of the divine entourage. I wish there was a better word I could use than entourage. There's a television show that I have not seen called Entourage, and it has done everything that Hollywood can do to spoil a good word like entourage. Um, but it's a, as a concept, it's pretty accurate. It's pretty good in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in the book of Revelation, angels function as some sort of royal council. Now, this is outside of our cultural background. Uh, when uh, the United States formed a republic, uh, George Washington, in his wisdom, and those who followed him, uh, attempted very carefully to signify that the president was one of the people and that you could be with the people and around the people and, and there, there were, were not to be these strict divisions like there has, had been in Great Britain between the people and the king or the people and the queen. But if, if we did live in a monarchy, you, you would understand this better. This would be more speaking our cultural language. If you lived in a monarchy, it would be very unusual for you as a citizen to ever have a private audience with the king. There would always be somebody in the room with you in the throne room. If the occasion was formal enough, there they would be, all the nobles uh, ranked um, uh, beside the throne. There would be knights, barons, dukes, earls, princes, all of these different uh, ranking nobility, they would, to get to the throne, you would have to walk past them, uh, through them. They're royal counselors, they're royal servants, they're responsible to carry out the royal will. And as you get closer to the throne, you see more wealth and more regalia and more power. God himself is seated on his throne and he is surrounded by a host of angels. They are servants who are ready to do his will. When Jesus is in anguish in the Garden of Eden, an angel comes to serve him. Why does the angel come to serve him? Because Jesus is the king. The Bible describes him this way. The Bible describes God this way in order to make a statement about his glory. Look at God on his throne and surrounding him, these thousands upon thousands of angels there to serve him. And look at the, the glory that is true of them. How much greater is the glory of the God who sits on the throne? Uh, do you remember that scene when Dorothy and the wise man and the lion and the, the scarecrow and the tin man, they, did I say wise man? Okay, I'm not sure how we got there. <laughs> We're talking about angels and shepherds, wise man. So Dorothy and, anyway, all right, so you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about, but you know what I'm talking about. So you get to see the, uh, the great and powerful Oz, right? They walk down that long hall, that long green hall, and then they walk into the throne room where the great and powerful Oz is, and, and there's smoke and, and flames, and the, the disembodied head of the great and powerful Oz shouts at them, and they're all cowering in fear before the great and powerful Oz. But this is in some ways the way the Bible is picturing the great God in heaven surrounded by this powerful and mighty host. Angels are 
created beings. They're personal beings. They have intelligence. They have will. They're moral creatures. Some of them are holy and some of them are sinful. They have supernatural knowledge. They don't know everything. As spirits, they have no bodies, though sometimes they appear. And they stand before God. And every time they appear in the Bible, those who see them tremble in fear. And who do those angels serve? They serve the Lord God Almighty. They worship Him. They obey Him. They honor Him. Their whole existence is devoted to His purposes, His cause, His will. When we pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? God's will is done in heaven by his angels. It is done gladly, immediately, unquestioningly. What does the Bible teach? So so the Bible is describing these, these great creatures to point us to God. And what do they teach us about God? They teach us to bend the knee, to bow in submission to him before the Lord God Almighty. If these creatures were to appear to us this morning here, you would be tempted to worship them. You would fall to your knees. You would be terrified. And everyone in the Bible who meets one is. But it is the Lord God Almighty they serve. They would tell you to stand to your feet and worship Him, not them. Him, Him. In that great day, that consummation of the age, of God's throne is going to be surrounded not just by His people, human beings, but He'll be surrounded by this vast company, 100 million angels, give or take a few, who, who will all together acclaim the greatness of God. Angels are a part of the entourage and they show us that God is of immense importance in the universe. So angels are entourage. Secondly here, angels are messengers. Angels are messengers. Messenger is actually the the best translation of both the Old and New Testament word for angels. In fact, the word in Greek, angelos, means messenger. That's what they are. They deliver God's message. They're heralds. Uh, We talked about Gabriel delivering the message to Mary and the angels delivering the message to the shepherds. Actually, the Bible says that it was angels who delivered the law to Moses. Look at what uh, Acts 7.53 says. Stephen is preaching to the Israelites the Jews in Jerusalem, you have received the law that was given, how? Through angels, but you have not obeyed it. Look at Galatians 3.19. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. Now it's interesting, angels are not mentioned much in Exodus when Moses is up on the mountain, but they were there apparently obeying God and delivering his message. Now what's interesting is in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews draws a significant point about this. It wants you to think about this. It wants you to think about the message that was delivered by angels as opposed to the message delivered by the Lord Jesus. Look with me here at Hebrews chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels the law of the Old Testament, was binding and every violation and disobedience disobedience received its just punishment. How should we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord Jesus, by the Lord, 
was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the author of Hebrews is saying, look, the Old Testament message, uh, the law in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that was given by an angel, if you didn't obey it, if you didn't follow it, there were consequences. Just think how much more there is now that we have the message of salvation that's delivered by the Lord Jesus. You can't ignore this and think it won't make a difference. He's building in a sense on what he says in Hebrews 1. Look, in the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in his various ways, through angels. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he anointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. There is a new message that has come. The old message, you're responsible to follow that. Jews, you were responsible to follow that. It came through the the angels. But now there is a new message that has come, and it has come through the Son, and it's the word of salvation. It is the message about how human beings in rebellion against God can be rescued. Those who are in rebellion against God are natural objects of His justice. We hire police officers as a community. We do that. We hire police officers. We elect judges. It's our hope and expectation. The system is not perfect. The people in it are not perfect. I understand that. But it's our hope and expectation that the police officers and the judges and the lawyers involved in that that system, that they will arrest and imprison criminals. That's what we want them to do. We want them to arrest and imprison people who break the law and who hurt people. That's what we want our police officers and members of the judicial system to do. God is the arbiter of justice in this world that he has made. He takes responsibility himself, ultimately, for punishing those who break law, his law, and hurt people. The problem is, that's all of us. We all stand guilty before him. We're all in rebellion against him. Today when we take the Lord's Supper this morning, we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus is the one who has rescued us from the wrath of God. He's our sin bearer. He's the one who suffered the punishment we deserved. God's holiness demands death for all those who are in rebellion. Jesus died in our place. His death is credited to all who believe. His death and his resurrection. And today we're going to remember his broken body and his shed blood when we partake of these elements. So what's interesting is that the Bible tells us that Jesus has died. He redeemed human beings. He rescued human beings from God's wrath, but not angels. There are angels who are in rebellion against God, but God has not rescued them. He has not sent a savior for them. And and this, the Bible tells us, makes angels very curious. Look what 1 Peter 1.12 says. It was revealed to the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, you New Testament readers of this letter I'm writing, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look in these things. Um... Crown him with many crowns. This just comes to me. Hopefully my memory will hold. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his wondering eyes at mysteries so bright. 
Angels in heaven long to look into this gospel. They wonder about it. It is, it is puzzling and mysterious to them and, and beautiful to see the grace of God for creatures, for human beings, those Christ redeemed, and not other angels. I wonder if that's why, could it possibly be that that's why God sent us to send the message of salvation and not angels? So he sent angels with the Old Testament law, but now he sends us to go and tell people about Jesus, the, the message of salvation. Why? Because we're the ones who have experienced it. We can tell people from first-hand experience what it means that Jesus is the Savior and will rescue all those who believe. Angels, they don't have that experience and they're not commissioned to tell the message like we are. So angels are messengers. Now here's a third role for angels. Angels are servants. Angels are servants. They're servants of God. They execute his will. They deliver his messages. They're angels of judgment. Uh, but look at Hebrews 1.14. This is puzzling. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The answer is yes, they are. Now what sense do angels serve followers of Jesus? So that's not an easy question to answer. Uh, in Acts, an angel sent Peter free from uh, prison. Uh, look at Psalm 34, 7. It says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So there's something. In Luke 15, I don't have this verse, but in Luke 15, 10, angels rejoice when sinners repent. That's good. Now look at this interesting verse from Luke 16. Jesus is telling a story about a beggar who died. He's telling a story about a beggar and a rich man, but uh, Jesus is telling this story, and he says, The time came when the beggar died, and the angel carried, angels carried him to Abraham's side. Is that what happens when you die? That angels take your spirit to heaven? Huh. Uh, do you remember when Abraham Lincoln died? Some of you, I know you weren't there, but when Abraham Lincoln died, when Abraham Lincoln died, Edwin Stanton was there. Edwin Stanton was the... Uh, Secretary of War. And very famously, he was standing there and he said when he died, when Abraham Lincoln died, Edwin Stanton said, now he belongs to the ages. There are some people who were in that room who are sure that he said, now he belongs to the angels. Is it possible that Edwin Stanton had been reading Luke 16 and recognized that angels had come to take Abraham Lincoln? Hmm. I don't know. We'll find out maybe someday. That's what God, God does work. Uh, angels, God does some of the work for his people through his angelic servants. Now, contrary to what some people believe, I don't think the Bible teaches that you have a guardian angel, that you have an angel that's assigned to you um, to, to guard your life. And if, he, if there is, they don't look anything like Michael Landon at all. You have to be old enough to think that's funny. So... Um, you're testifying right now. Okay. There's nothing concrete in the Bible to uh, establish that each person has some sort of individual watchful spirit. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Some of you are looking forward to that day when you can thank your guardian angel with a nice gift, but no. Now, finally, here. Here's the last role that angels play. Enemies. Enemies. Some angels in the Bible are God's enemies. Most of the doctrinal statement is actually dedicated to Satan, the adversary of, of God. 
By our best understanding, again, the Bible does not tell us everything we want to know. It doesn't answer all of our questions. But by our best understanding, Satan was originally created as an angel named Lucifer. He was a beautiful and powerful angel with uncomparable access to God's presence. And during a period of time when angels were able to rebel, he chose, he wanted God's throne for himself. Think about that. Even in Matthew 4, he he says to the Lord Jesus when he's tempting him, he says, worship me, worship me, worship me. That's what he has wanted from nearly the very beginning. Sometime between that, that sixth day of creation when God said, this is good, all of creation is very good, and that day of temptation that comes in Genesis 3, sometime between then, Uh, Satan rebelled and he appears to have led an army of angels in rebellion against him. Some of those demons are imprisoned. Others are able to roam freely and they tempt and deceive. As Jesus said, they steal, kill, and and destroy. He's God's adversary. But in comparison to God, he's not very powerful at all. In comparison to you, he is. He's shrewd, he's cunning, he's persuasive, he's deceptive. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the, the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Look out, be prepared, be alert. Stand against him. In comparison to God, Satan is not powerful. In comparison to you, he is. He is, at this point in time, God's servant. He won't acknowledge this. He doesn't care for this. But he accomplishes God's purposes. He does exactly what God wants him to do. Every time. And he hates it. The Bible tells us to stand against him. How? James 4 Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We submit to God. That's how he resists the devil. Uh, our specialty is not on going on the offensive against Satan. Our specialty is on turning and trusting and obeying the Lord Jesus. That's our salvation. It's time for us to finish before we move to the table. Um, Kathy and I met at a camp in western New York, I've told you about it before, called Circle C Ranch. And we were campers there, we worked there. Uh, we go as a family in August for a special weekend there. Uh, there are, Circle C is kind of in the middle of nowhere, uh, and um, there are multiple ways to get there, and I have approached Circle C from almost every direction. And, and a few miles out, in almost any direction, at major intersections, there are signs that will point the way. Circle C, there's an arrow. And I'm always happy to see those signs because it means we're getting closer to that wonderful place. Brothers and sisters, we believe in the unseen world. Uh, It is populated by millions and millions of spiritual beings. God tells us the truth about them. They exist to do his his bidding. We don't know everything about them. But we confess we believe in them because the Bible speaks to them. And when they appear on the pages of Scripture, they always function as signs. They they point us in the direction of God Himself. They say, here He is. Look at Him. Trust in Him. He is the greater, glorious One. He's the great God, the One you should worship and serve. 
The angels say, it is our pleasure to do so. The demons say, we wish you wouldn't. But, but this is what we believe. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we do so gladly through the Lord Jesus, who is our one mediator, uh, who brings us to the throne of grace through his blood. He who is our great high priest. Lord, we are thankful to you for uh, what your Bible teaches us about angels. We confess we are mystified sometimes about it. There's, we have a lot of unanswered questions, things that we want to know that you have not chosen to tell us. Lord, um, keep us from thinking too much about angels and demons and Satan and keep us from thinking too little about them either. Uh, help us to remember that angels are, are those creatures for which we should be grateful because they're servants who do your will, servants who serve us in ways that we, we don't know about or see or understand always. Keep our eyes firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus, our great Savior, even as we, in anticipation, join in the chorus of the angels, worshiping the great Lamb who is worthy of power and glory and honor. Thank you, Lord. May we be faithful in obeying you and in speaking your message and in trusting and submitting ourselves to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.